Welcome to the regime. Put you on a pedestal. <laughs> lovely, lovely. So you've always obviously come from far and wide. Ah, look at that. I haven't turned here. <laughs> wow. Wow. May your tribe increase. <laughs> <laughs> Someone must have prayed that prayer sometime in the past. <laughs> lovely. Jesus said, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them from coming to me. Now, uh, some of you may wonder what a dedication is. You know, when an author finishes a book, uh, what's the last thing the author writes? He's finished a story, he's finished his work, and he turns to the very first page and he writes a little dedication. Uh, it's to say that this book is about to be birthed, and I would so much like to give this as a token to someone whom I love so much. Now this, in some sense, is what Luke and Andrea seek to do today, this morning. They are bringing their child and they are saying to God, I, we should so much like to give him back to you. Now, uh, so they've come to do two things, in, in a sense, and we have come together to do one thing. Uh, they have come to thank God for Judah. They have come really to bring Judah to the Lord and say, I'm giving him back to you. I'll talk a little bit about that later on. They have also come to make a solemn vow that they would do as much as their strength allow them to bring this child up in the way of the Lord. Now, it's a tall order. It's so difficult to bring up a child any time, but especially in this day and age that we live in. The forces are just so great against us, but that's what they pledge to do, and that's good. Thirdly, we have come together to support them, not just for this morning, but in the months and the years to come, to remember to pray for Luke and Andrea as they bring up, as they bring up Judah. Scripture says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your strength, with all your heart, and with all your mind. These words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. Impress them upon your child as you seek to bring him up. Talk to him about the Lord when you sit down, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Look in Andrea as you engage in this task with joy and peace. May you earnestly seek the Lord's help because as we know we can't do it on our own strength, on our own steam. It is only in the strength of the Lord that any one of us could succeed. And there'll be lots of milestones that this young man will be going through, and uh, there'll be obvious joy and obvious grief, as it is in the journeys of life, and we pray that you will find strength in the Lord as you seek to bring him up. May you both also continually give thanks to the Lord for this great gift that he's given to you, not taking it for granted, but... Uh, yeah, mindful that this is a gift from God. And as he grows, may you earnestly strive to be there for him at all times. I want to make the charge to an extended family as well, to the extended family, and that is this. As close relatives of Luke and Andrea, 
you obviously have your heart with them, and uh, I would urge you to pray constantly for them, be mindful of them, and uh, each year as he goes through another milestone to remember his birthday, to pray especially for him, uh, if not regularly, then at least on his birthday. But I'm sure you pray more often than that. Uh, I'm sure you will. Uh, it's a joy and respons- uh, and both a joy and a responsibility. So I pray that as extended families, that uh, each one of you will play your part to pray for Judah daily, if you could. Or- Emily, I wonder whether I could put you on the spot to come up here and read to us from Genesis 22, verse 1 to 15, please. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took it in in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they both of them together went. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. We've been going through the book of Job uh, in this season in the life of the church, but uh, for this Sunday we thought we'd take a break from Job and preach a baby dedication sermon. So shall we seek the Lord as we wait on him now? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gift of children, and we thank you for the example of Abraham, the faith of Abraham, his dedication, his loyalty to you, and his 
deep willingness to surrender the greatest treasure in his heart over to you. Lord, as we pause before this word, speak to us, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk about something this morning, uh, which I don't usually talk about, and that is giving your children back to God. In fact, I have entitled my sermon, Returning the Gift. So I'm talking about giving God's gift back to him. I wonder how many of you have ever thought of giving your children back to God. Now, when a pastor talks like that, there will be some of you undoubtedly who perhaps would be thinking inside your heart, oh, I'd love to do that. I'd love to give my child back to God, especially if he were a teenager, I think. But, but you see, I didn't think that God would want him back. I don't think God has a, I think God has a no return policy. Uh, besides, I've lost the receipt. Yeah. You said something like that. The truth of the matter is there isn't a single one of us here who for some seasons in our lives uh, would have liked to package up our kit and uh, take him to God's service counter uh, and uh, ask for our money back for what he has given to us, for what we have purchased. So quite often you hear parents say when we first got married, uh, we have three theories about bringing up children, and now we have three children and no theories. (laughs) That would be right, you know. Uh, It's difficult bringing up a child. Now, of course, I'm not talking about physically giving up your child back to God. There's no way you could bundle her up and give it back to God. I'm talking about a metaphorical way of uh, taking your child into your hand and in a way that expresses the deep resolve in your heart, say to God, she's yours. I'm giving her back to you. Yes, I will have her. I will bring her up. But he's really not mine. He's on loan to me for a few decades of her life. She's really yours. And I've come to see that, and I really would like to give her back to you. So that's the sense of giving a child back to God that that we are talking about here. I thought a lot about it this week, and I thought there are two reasons really for why God would want us to give our child back to him. One, it is to save the child. And two, it is really to save us as parents when we do that. So first things first, giving your child back to God really saves your child. It's going to deliver your child. It's going to be good for him. Now, why, you ask? Because there's a sense of possessiveness in every one of us that we hardly notice. Perhaps people outside could notice this, that you are being quite possessive of your child. But none of us as parents, we notice that, really. None of us notice that we are possessive. But all of us, to a degree, to one degree or another, we are possessive of our child. And we are possessive of our children or child for a number of reasons. You know, we're all afflicted by pride, every single one of us. But there's one thing we don't often address, and I'd like to touch on that a little bit this morning. And that is this. Shame. Shame. 
we could really be very possessive of our children because of our own shame. Now you think, how does that add up? Well, the thing is this. Shame is a concept we don't often talk about today. Of course, it's more acutely conscious in one culture over the other culture. I come from a culture where shame is huge. You just don't do stuff that you shouldn't do because it brings great shame to your family. It's, it's huge. It still hovers over my head now uh, as I speak, even though I've so many years been delivered from that. Uh, shame is an invisible load that you carry in your heart. If you are afflicted by shame, most of the time you're sad. You're not happy. You seldom are hopeful. You're uncomfortable in the midst of people who are more successful than you. Uh, you thought if people would only know who you really are, they would, they would stop coming near you. It's, it's a feeling that we all have, that sort of feelings. Now, Dr. Louis Schmidt, who is a Christian psychologist, he says, if you persistently have this kind of feelings, you are probably afflicted by shame more than you do. The thing is this, we all try to invent ways to shield us from shame. None of that is successful. None of them works, really. Many parents, because of their shame as a result of some kind of a failure, whether imagined or real, uh, they think that the quickest way to absorb them from the shame that they feel is to live their lives through their kids. So in areas that they have failed, they try to get their parents, or their kids rather, they try to get their kids to succeed in those very areas that they have failed with the hope that if their kids succeed in those very areas, they might, less, they might be less shameful than they are. So there are people who try to get their kids to live their lives for them with the hope that if they succeed, they are less shameful. It's unspoken, it's, it's, it's not talked about, but it is real. It's a real thing. But the thing is this, no matter how careful you craft it, no matter how carefully you try not to let your child know that you're making him live your life for you, it's a subliminal message that comes through, and they pick it up. They really pick it up. And it's, it's a horrendous burden that you put on your child because your child has to live two lives. They have to live their life, and they have to live your life for you. Now, how hard is that? If that child of yours is academic in nature, who loves books, who loves studies, she loves studies. She will study hard because that validates her. That validates her, and she naturally studies hard. But she has to be sporty as well because that's what you want of her, because that's what validates you. Or if you want a boy to be sporty and that validates you, how hard would it be for that boy? You know, he wants to work hard in his studies, but he's got to be good at sports to validate you as well. Tulan Jivijan says this best. He says, parents are cruel and unloving to their children when they place a large burden on their small shoulders that they were never intended to bear, namely, make my life worth living. And sadly, there are many kids who, fe who feel that this is the vibes coming through from their parents, 
Of course, the parents will never say it in so much words, but kids hear it. Kids hear you say to them, make my life worth living. Mark Ovachi was an 11-year-old boy, and he was five foot four. And quite early in life, a message had gotten through to him that he was short. Now, how short? How short is five foot four? Five foot four is not all that short, really. But very early in his life, the message was coming through to him, you are short, you are short, you are short. And so every night, except on Sundays, his mother shoots a hormone into his arm to make his bones grow. The hormone costs her $15,000 a year, but it's nothing to her if that would make her child grow a little taller. But little does the mother know that Mark is beginning to feel that if the mother goes to such length to make, her, to make him tall, then being short must have been a shameful thing to be. You see the paradox of it? The curing of an old disease brings about a new disease. He's never felt shame before as he begins to feel now. How sad is that? You know, Tim Keller tells us that there is a strong tendency to make idols out of our children. Now, we don't say this, at least not out loud, but we do. Many of us have turned our children into our idols, and Keller says it's an idol that we are afraid to talk about. I want to quote Keller here. He says, and I quote, I don't think two generations ago we built our entire life around our children the way we do today. They've got to be the perfect person. They've got to be perfect in school. They've got to be perfectly happy. They've got to have the best of everything. I think that's a consumer kind of thing, and it's a, it's a very contemporary, secular approach to raising children. And I think Keller is right. It's sad if we see this within the four walls of the church, but Keller is right. It's so easy to make your children the hub, the center of virtually everything that you do and everything that you stand for. But they're not the center of the universe. But we give them the idea that they're the center of the universe. And we tell our children, perhaps not in so much words, but we tell our children, you are the center of everything. Everything revolves around you. You're the hub. You're the sun. Everything revolves around you. Nothing outside you. Now, when you do that to your kid, you're doing your kid a great dishonor a great disfavor. Because when they grow up, first thing they walk into the world, the world's not going to make them the center of everything. Nothing revolves around them. They're no longer the sun. And they're going to say, what's happening now? Nobody's listening to me. Nobody's noticing me. And now deep within their hearts, there is resentment rising because they're saying, I deserve this. I'm owed this. I'm entitled to this. So many of us, we need to be careful. We think that by making our children everything in our lives, we are, we're showing them great favor. We're destroying them because they're going to go out into the world that finds a completely different set of values than the parents give to them. Your possessiveness will end up destroying your child one way or another. There was once a devout father a sober man, an Eastern European immigrant. 
And he came to this new land, to this new country. He had no wife. All he had was this daughter of his, the love of his life. And he poured everything into her because she is the love of her life. And he became increasingly scared when he looks at her growing up in this new country. Uh, old sets of values have gone, and she's adopting this new set of values. She's a, a modern girl now, growing up a modern girl. She dresses differently than when she first came into this land as, a, as an immigrant. And before he knew it all too soon, she's completely different. And it scared the life out of him. And he didn't know how to deal with it because he didn't have a wife and she didn't have a mother. And so he felt the shame of his daughter embracing this new set of values. But to, sh to save himself from the shame that he felt, he seared her spirit with his shame. He begins to call her by all kinds of names. And uh, he tells her that she was cheap. He tells her that the reason she looks like a whore is because she was a whore. And he went on and on and on, driven by the shame in his own heart. And his daughter soon felt that she must be that sort of girl to be given that label. And she went out and she began to live the kind of life that her own father projected for her and playing the role that her father had written for her. And on her 90th, 19th birthday, she went out and she took her own life as a final effort to escape from the shame she never deserved. Now, this is what I mean when I say there's a kind of possessiveness that destroys your child. The story that Emily read out to us about Abraham God actually gives us that narrative in a very kind way because God spares us the details. We never knew how Abraham must have struggled when he was called to kill his own, own son, his only son. He must have struggled for weeks and for months perhaps. It was A.W. Tozer in one of his books describes for us graphically the kind of suffering that Abraham must have gone through. But Tozer says something at the end of that book which touched me for many, many years in my life and it still touches me each time I think about it. And that is this. At the end of the narrative, Abraham still had Isaac. But Abraham no longer possessed Isaac. I just love that when I read that. At the end of the story, Abraham still had Isaac, but Abraham no longer possessed Isaac. And that's, that's a world of a difference. You can still have your kids living under your roof, but you no longer possess them. They're still there. You still love them. You still pour your love upon them but you're no longer possessive of them. So that's my first reason why we should be very careful about possessing our children. It destroys them. There is a second reason, and that is this. It destroys you. When you possess your children, it destroys you as parents. Now, how is it so, you, you ask? How is that so? I'll tell you another story. You're very lucky this morning to have that many stories. <laughs> this comes out of UK from the United Kingdom, Neil Patrick and his Japanese wife, Kazumi, 
had this five-year-old child, absolutely adored him and poured everything into, into him. Kazumi worked as a Japanese translator at Honda in Swindon, just out of, UK, uh, out of London. And Sam was, when Sam was only 18 months, Kazumi was driving the car when a woman, distracted by her dogs barking in her own car, drove straight into Kazumi's car, and Sam became paralyzed. At 18 months, he became paralyzed from the neck down, and all through his short life, he was unable to breathe. He was in and out of hospital. And four years later, he contracted pneumococcal meningitis, uh, meningitis, and the disease progressed with shocking speed. And in a space of seven days, Neil and Kazumi lost their only child. She, he died. They were absolutely, totally devastated and inconsolable. And on the morning of 29th of May 2009, they drove to the famous cliff on Beachy Head near Eastbourne. They took two rucksacks with them, one containing the body of their lost child, and another rucksack filled with his favorite toys. And from the top of the cliff, they both jumped down to their deaths. The thing is this, it is incredible how deep the human heart is capable of love. Our capacity to love has a bottomless pit. We are able to love and love and love and still love and still have more love to give. But precisely because of that, the degree of being inconsolable when the object of your love is taken away from you is equally deep. But the reality is this. Virtually everything you love on this earth will be pulled off from under your feet if not next month, next year. Virtually everything you love, virtually everyone you love, sooner or later, will be ripped, stripped away from you. And your deepest love, your greatest love, that too will be taken away from you. And when your greatest love is taken away from you, you will have no more reason to live. So my question for you this morning is, what is your greatest love Right now, as you sit there listening to me, what is easily right there? I believe with all my heart when, as a pastor, I ask a question like that, most people are able to identify immediately what it is. And I, I do believe you can. I do believe right now, at this point in time, you're able within your own heart to tell me what is it. I'll help you to identify if you find it difficult. I'll help you. Well... It is the one thing which, if you lose, you would want to jump out from, from a bridge. You would want to jump off a bridge. That is your number one. If you lose that, you would want to jump off the bridge. There is a second test, and that is this. What is it that you are thinking about all the time when you have nothing to think about? It's as if it's the default setting of your heart. When you really have nothing to be thinking about, when life is good and everything is going well, what are you obsessively, obsessively thinking about all the time? What's your daydream in other words? 
But there is a third test, and that is this. What is it if God refuses to give it to you will cause you to begin to lose your faith in him? All those three questions will help you identify what is it that easily is for you your number one love. And for many of us, it could be your sports, it could be your career, your music, your possessions, your parents, some deep relationships, some guy out there, some woman out there. But in the context of our situation this morning, for many of us, it is our children. Our children rank much, much higher than God. God is perhaps here, but our children are there. There is something, someone in your heart with, that you have unrestrained craving for. And I've got to check my own heart. I've got to periodically check my own heart as well. But every one of these things, as I've said, will be taken away from you sooner or later. Your parent will die. Your child might desert you. Your career could be taken away from you. And you may suffer a severe financial fallout any day. And that goes for your child too. One day your child may be taken away from you. So how may you stop possessing your child? I have bad news for you. There's no way. There's no way you can stop possessing your child. Because there is no way you could stop possessing something, someone. In this case, it is your child. The human heart and the human inclination to possess something is so deeply rooted, it can never be uprooted. That desire to possess something can only be taken away by a greater possession, by a greater love, by something that you come to cherish far more than what you now cherish. That is the only way to stop possessing something, and that is to possess something far beautiful, far more sublime, far more exquisitely lovely and sweet. That's the only way. And if we were wise, we would pick that thing or that person who, unlike our children, unlike our parents, would never ever fail us. And that's God. Because He gave His only Son he too gave back he had what he had. He surrendered his only son. Like Abraham, he too gave him up, his only begotten son. So as a father, he knew what it meant for his own son to be ripped from his heart, to be given away. And for that, it's because of his deep, deep love for you and for me that he surrendered his own son, put him on the altar, and plunge that knife down into his heart. He gave Jesus to us so that we might live. And it still remains true that to this day, the only way you can be saved from that longing heart of yours. You know, your heart is a bottomless Grand Canyon, and my heart is a bottomless Grand Canyon. There's just so much to absorb, so much to desire, so much to want, so much to last for.
And it's only having Jesus that finally will give us that peace and that joy that endures. And you will hunger no more. Otherwise, Jesus would be lying when he said, Come to me, drink of me, and you will never thirst again. I'm the living bread. Eat from me, and you will hunger no more. But he did not lie. He speaks the truth. If we have Jesus, we have all we will ever need for our lives. So that's my word for us this morning. Possessing our child destroys him. In turn, it destroys us. Giving him over to the Lord delivers him, saves him. In turn, it saves our craving heart from running after things that we might lose any second, any day. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.